All right, Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 22, I'll read to the end of the chapter, which is verse 33. Paul writes, For this reason I have also been much hindered from coming to you, but now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you. Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. But now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it is pleased, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are debtors, they're debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Well, last time when we looked at Romans 15, we looked at verses 14 through 21, and we saw here Paul talking to the Roman church, kind of giving him some comforting words as he expresses his confidence in them, in their goodness, and in their knowledge, how, they have, how their faith has been spoken of. And he, so then he writes to them, and he says that um, he was confident that their practice will match their profession of faith because the Roman church was one whose faith was known throughout the, the region. Paul writes about that in the beginning of the letter. And then Paul spends the rest of that passage then reflecting on his own ministry to the Gentiles, how he was called by Christ specifically to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He recognizes that his ministry is a grace, it is a gift that was given to him. You know, if you remember Paul again, he was trapped in legalistic Phariseeism. He was trapped in a dead-end religion that was going nowhere. And by God's grace, God took him from that and then gave him the privilege to minister the gospel to the Gentiles. But he also likens, if you recall, we kind of looked through that as well, he also likens his ministry to the Gentiles as a priestly service being offered to God's glory. How he mentions that he himself is a priestly servant called for this task. And that his ministering the gospel to the Gentiles is a priestly service. And that the Gentiles themselves, as they are converted to the gospel and come into the kingdom, the Gentiles themselves are a priestly sacrifice acceptable to God. And because of all this, as such then, Paul, he boasts, he glories in the fact that he is been called by Christ and that his glory is in Christ alone who called him to such a privileged work. He doesn't boast in his own abilities, his own accomplishments, his own hard work, any of that thing. He boasts in Christ because the glory belongs to Christ because it's Christ who called him out of uh, Judaism to minister the gospel. It's Christ who has empowered his ministry. It is Christ who then brings salvation through Paul to the Gentiles to whom he ministers. And then Paul closes that section by talking about his aim or his ambition in preaching. 
Paul wants to be where the gospel has not yet been preached. Paul wants to be on the vanguard. He wants to be at the forefront. He wants to be out there laboring amongst people who have never heard the name of Christ. That's his goal. He doesn't want to work on another man's foundation. Other people can do that. Paul's desire, his burning uh, mission was to take the gospel other places where he's not, where he's not been heard. So thus, that's his desire then to go to Spain because he had not been out there yet. He hadn't even been to Rome yet. So that's why he expresses his desire. I want to go to Rome. I want to visit with you. And then I want to go from there to Spain and bring the gospel out there as well. So now as we head into today's passage here, verses 22 through 23, uh, I think it might be helpful to review just a few things that are external to this passage. If you, again, if you remember way, 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 way back when we started Romans a little over a year ago in Romans chapter 1, we talked about how Paul wrote this letter around the years 57 to 58 A.D. Okay? Now, if you were to plot Paul's life on a timeline, that would put him somewhere in his third missionary journey as he is ministering in that area of Macedonia and Greece He's, most scholars believe he wrote the letter to Romans from Corinth. So he was ministering in Corinth. This would be somewhere around Acts 18, 19 in that, in that area. So he wrote to them from the city of Corinth, which is in the region of Achaia, which is really just the southern part of the Greek peninsula. And the timing and the location, as we said, places his letter during the end of Paul's third missionary journey. Now, why do I mention all this? Because Paul, in this section here, what we're going to read, what we just read, and what we're going to look at, talks about his travel plans and how he hopes to come to Rome. But first, he says, I need first to go to Jerusalem and drop off this collection that I've been gathering as I've been working my way through the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. I've got this money, and I need to bring it to Jerusalem first. And then when I do that, then my hope is to come out and visit with you and then go on to Spain. So he's been raising this collection during his journey and he wants to take it back. And all this plays a part in this passage as we, that we're going to look at this morning. So without any further ado, let us dig into the verses here. So first we see Paul's desire to visit Rome in verses 22 through 24. And here Paul in verse 22 begins by giving his reason for not having come to Rome earlier. He says, for this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. Now, when Paul says, for this reason, that's sort of like saying, therefore, or, you know, it's a a marker, it's a linguistic marker that says, okay, well, what reason? You need to look back at the previous verses. The reason uh, that Paul has been, quote-unquote, hindered from coming to you is because he wanted to be on the vanguard of gospel ministry, and that prevented him from coming to Rome earlier. He had been experiencing much fruitful ministry in Macedonia and Achaia. He'd been, he'd been going through Macedonia, through Corinth and all those cities there, and the Lord had been blessing his work, and as such, Paul couldn't leave. He, he didn't feel his work was done yet. So he says, my ministry, because my fruitful ministry here, I've been hindered in coming to you. Now Paul mentions this idea of being hindered from coming to the Romans earlier in the letter, in chapter 1, verse 13, in the introduction of the letter, before he gets to the body, he says, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, 
that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. So even when he starts the letter, Paul says, look, I really want to come to you, but I'm hindered. (laughs) I'm hindered. And we find out the reason of the hindering, at least in this case, is because God has been blessing the work that he's been doing in Macedonia and Achaia. He's Many people, he spent three years in Corinth and two and a half years in Ephesus. He had, he had a, lot of, a lot of fruitful ministry here. Now, is God sovereign? <laughs> this is a very easy question, right? Yes, God is indeed sovereign. He ordains all things and providentially governs them so that they fall out according to his eternal decree. So we shouldn't think that Paul mentioning that he is being hindered was somehow by coincidence. It's like, oh, hey, look, I'm having fruitful ministry here, so I can't come to you. What a lucky coincidence. That's not how Paul thinks. He doesn't mention it. But it was fruitful ministry that, the God, that God was working in through him, that the Spirit was working through him to bring these Corinthians to the faith. God wanted Paul there. He wanted Paul in Corinth. He wanted Paul in Greece because he had many sheep there that needed to be added to the fold. Now, Paul doesn't always mention what earthly reasons that God providentially uses to hinder Paul, but consider some other New Testament scriptures. If you will, keep your finger here and turn to Acts 16. Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. So this would be part of Paul's second missionary journey. So in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10, um, Luke, the author of Acts, tells us, Now when they, that is Paul and his companions, had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, But the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. I think that's a pretty safe conclusion, don't you? You get a vision of a man says, come to Macedonia, and you wake up in the morning, I think we need, we need to go to Macedonia. Why? Because a man told me in a vision we need to go there. Um, now here you see this. Paul had desired, as he was leaving uh, Antioch, so you think of where Israel is and just think a little bit north of that, he wanted to go up back into the region of Galatia. So it would have been north and to the east a little bit, but he says the Spirit of God hindered him. And then he wanted to go in a different direction and says the Spirit of God hindered him again. Now, we're not told how the Spirit of God hindered him. Did the, you know, was it like Balaam on his donkey as he's going along the way and he sees an angel and says, don't pass, you know, you know, to use Gandalf, thou shalt not pass. You know. Or was there just some circumstance? Maybe it was snow or maybe you know, the road conditions were bad or the weather was bad or something that prevented him from going. And we don't know, we're not told. It just says, the Spirit did this. Whether it's directly or indirectly, the Spirit did it. But whatever we know is that we see here then he gets this vision that says, come to Macedonia. So that's what starts Paul going to the area of Macedonia and Greece. He was called there. He was specifically called there 
by a vision given to him by the Spirit to minister there. So then he, of course, has much fruitful work there. But there's another passage in 1 Thessalonians 2. You don't need to turn there because I actually have the in my notes. But 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 17 and 18, Paul is writing, now this is to the, the people in Thessalonica, which is in Macedonia, one of the towns that he visited and ministered to. And if you remember how it goes in Acts 16 and 17, Paul is going from these cities, and as, he's, as he preaches in one, and he has fruitful ministry, then all of a sudden opponents come and drive him out, and then he goes to the next town. And then they follow him to the next town and drive him out and go to the next town. So he had been in Thessalonica and he had ministered there and had fruitful ministry there, but he was driven out. He was only, I think, there like he says three Sabbath days, which is essentially three weeks, and he was driven out. And he writes him and says, look, I want to come back to you, but I couldn't. And that's what he says here in verse uh, 17 and 18 of chapter 2. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you, for a short time in presence, not in heart. In other words, we, we're not there physically, but you're in our hearts still. We endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. So what, Satan can hinder the work of God? What do you guys think? Can Satan hinder the work of God? So it sounds like you're saying yes and no. <laughs> okay, how many other people think yes and no is the answer to that question? <laughs> okay, don't, don't be afraid. Raise your hand. That's what I have. I say yes and no. Um, yes, in the fact that Satan's prime goal is to hinder the work of God, to harass and persecute God's people, and to thwart the work of the kingdom. That's what Satan wants to do. That's what he did here. Now, no, in the sense that God is sovereign even over Satan. A clear passage of that would be just read the book of Job, where Satan goes before God in heaven and says, look at Job, he's, he's nothing special. And God says, oh yeah, well then go ahead and afflict him if you want. God allows Satan to afflict Job, but he gives him limits. He says, don't touch his, don't, don't harm him, don't kill him. Do what you will to his possessions and stuff, but you know, go this far, no further. Satan is on God's leash. Okay, Satan can't do anything unless God allows it to happen. And God then overrules that work and turns it to good. So you, again, now if you think about how, again, if you read the book of Acts, you see how Paul was kind of chased out from city to city to city in Macedonia. That would be, you know, you could say, well, that's the work of the devil because the devil is, in, is sort of like working in these people to, to go and persecute Paul and harass Paul and drive him out of the city. But what does that do? He's driven out of one city. What does Paul do? He goes to the next one and then has fruitful ministry there and then he's driven out of that city. And what happens? He goes to the next one. It's like whack-a-mole. It's like Satan is trying to play a game of whack-a-mole that he'll never win. He hits the mole here and it pops up over there. That's what happens. Right? Satan wants to hinder the kingdom of God and he persecutes the kingdom of God and just drives the church outward. So yes, Satan wants to hinder the work of God and actually, quote-unquote, does hinder the work of God, but God is sovereign over that and uses that to work his own plans out of it. 
As Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So Paul now turns to his desire to visit the Romans in verses 23 and 24. You can go back to Romans 15. But now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. So his work... He feels his work in Achaia and his work in Macedonia is coming to an end. He's done everything he can do there. He has established churches. He has preached the gospel. He's got a foundation there. Now he's like, okay, it's time for me to move on. It's time for me to get on the road again. To use the Willie Nelson song, on the road again. Bringing the gospel to where it's never been. You know, I just made that up. Not bad, huh? <laughs> So he's done. He feels his work is done. So now he says that his work in Greece is done. So now he now wants to go and visit the Romans. And he says, when I begin to travel to Spain, I want to stop off at Rome and I want to fellowship with you. I want to, to, to see you. And hopefully maybe you can help me then on my way to Spain. Now again, his desire to visit Rome was no secret. He mentions it earlier in the letter. He mentions it here in the letter. He talks about it in the book of Acts. We see this in Acts 19.21 when he's in the city of Ephesus. Paul says there, or well, Luke tells us, when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul makes his, des his desire to visit Rome even here in Acts chapter 19. Now, Paul doesn't want the Romans to think that he only wants to go there so he can get some help on his way to Spain. He's not, he doesn't want to use them. He doesn't want to think that he's there to use them. So he tells them, I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you if first I may enjoy your company. So he wants to fellowship with them. He wants to spend some time with them, get to know them, for, him to get to know, uh, for them to get to know him. But his idea, you know, he still, though, wants to move out to Spain. He hopes to be aided on his trip to Spain, but we have to remember, what was Paul's aim? What did Paul want to do? He wanted to preach the gospel where it had not been heard. So while he does want to spend some time in Rome, Rome is already an established church. He wants to go somewhere else where the church has not yet been established. So as much as he would like to fellowship with the Romans, his calling was to go forth. Now we can learn a couple of lessons from this as well. First, good things, even many good things, can distract us from excellent things, right? This is a lesson we get from Luke chapter 10 with Lazarus' two sisters, Martha and Mary. Jesus is there visiting, and I think it's Martha who's the workaholic. She's in the kitchen slaving away, preparing a meal for them, and her sister Mary, she's sitting there listening to Jesus, and Martha is like, okay, come on now. You're leaving me to do all the work. She goes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, will you tell my sister to help me? Pretty bold, I think, to go up to the Lord and kind of re mildly rebuke him and say, tell my sister to help me. And she says, Martha, Martha, Martha. <laughs> or Jesus says, Martha, 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 Martha. Almost think of the Brady Bunch. Marsha, Marsha, Martha. But Martha, Martha, Martha. It's like you are frantic and worried about good things, but 
your sister Mary has chosen the excellent thing, which is to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him. So good things can crowd out excellent things. And as good as fellowship is, and it is good, we need it. We need to be in fellowship with one another. We really need to be about the work of the kingdom. That is our primary mission, right? Our mission statement, the Great Commission. Go, therefore, into all the world and teach and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. So that is our main goal. And, you know, if Paul were to just sort of sit there in fellowship with the Romans for weeks and months and years, he would never then get to go to Spain. He would be sort of sitting there enjoying the fellowship and not out on the vanguard preaching the gospel. That was his calling. His calling was to be out there in the furthest reaches. Second thing to learn from this is that all our plans sort of need to be with that sort of God-willing caveat, right? We, need, we always say that, right? I'll come and visit you Tuesday, God willing. Yeah. Or I plan to go to Chicago tomorrow, God willing. Yeah. So you gotta, you know, we throw that in. It's almost, like, it's almost like saying at the end of a prayer, in Jesus' name, because that, you know, we, we're so accustomed to saying that. So there are Paul's plans, his desires, but he hasn't forgotten Proverbs 16.9, right? A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. Right? Paul had ideas, but he knew in the back of his mind that it was God who was allowing him to do these things, that God providentially moved and allowed him to do these things. And as James says, right? James in chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there, buy and sell and make profit. Whereas you know not what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. So James and the Proverbs and the Bible all teaches that we are under God's sovereign and providential care. We make our plans. The Lord directs our steps. Paul knows that. And when he, when he, even though he doesn't say, if the Lord wills here, you know, he knows that everything he plans is all under that umbrella, if the Lord allows it. Okay, let's move on now to verses 24 through 29, as we see Paul's obligation here to minister to the Jews in Jerusalem. Now, as much as Paul wants to go to Rome, and as much as Paul wants to go to Spain after having gone to Rome, Paul still needs first to go back to Jerusalem, verse 25. But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. Now again, if you remember, we read from Acts 19.21, Paul's plan was he wanted to go through Macedonia to Achaia, then to go to Jerusalem, and then after that, I want to go to Rome. And in Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, after the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed there three months. And when the Jews plotted against him, he was about to sail to Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia. So this is the end of Paul's third missionary journey. And he must first return home before going back out to Rome. Now Paul, more importantly, had hoped to get back to Jerusalem and minister to the saints there in Jerusalem. Now, again, at this time, we said this is 57, 58 A.D., right before 60 A.D., there had already been much persecution of the Jerusalem church. 
If you've read through the book of Acts, the men are going through the book of Acts. And in Acts, what happens in Acts chapter 6? Or, sorry, Acts chapter 7. What happens in Acts chapter 7? Don't look in Acts chapter 7, Fred. You should. (laughs) Stephen is martyred, right? And then what happens after that? Okay, well, a little bit before that. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, so Paul, Stephen is persecuted and martyred, all right? And he gives this great speech, and then at the end, he calls the Jewish people stiff-necked, stubborn people because you won't believe in the Messiah, and then they get angry and they start casting stones at him. And then after that, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we see now Saul, Paul, was consenting to his death. So Paul was there as a member of the Sanhedrin, sort of approving of what was going on. And at that time, we learn a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So again, remember, think of that, that whack-a-mole, right? So the, Jewish, you know, the, the, the Jews, the unconverted Jews, great persecution on the church in Jerusalem. Whack! And then the church spreads out to Judea and Samaria. It's like trying to squeeze a water balloon. You know, you squeeze it here and the water goes bloop, you know, like that. So here we go, they're out now there. But this persecution arose in the Jerusalem church at the death of Stephen. So they were sort of, you know, you, know, you, you think about a crowd mentality, right? Once something happens in a crowd, the crowd starts, yeah, yeah, let's persecute more. So Stephen is killed and then they just go crazy and they start ravaging the church of Jerusalem. Later on, we see another persecution in Jerusalem by the hand of Herod in chapter 12, verse 1 of Acts. Now about that time, Herod, the king, stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. And as a result of that wave of persecution, John's brother James, not the James who wrote the letter James, that's Jesus' brother James. This is John, the apostle's brother James. Remember John and James, the sons of Zebedee, they were the sons of thunder, Well, James must have been a little more thunderous than John because he was killed. So he must have been, you know, you always kill the most outspoken one, right? You know, it's like you get the leader first and then you try to get the rest. So they got James, they killed James, and then they arrest Peter and put him in jail as well. And the Jerusalem church had been ravaged. So Paul was going to minister to them. And that ministry was a much needed contribution, verse 26. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. So part of Paul's ministry as he was preaching the gospel in Macedonia and Achaia was to take up a collection for the Jerusalem church, for the persecuted church in Jerusalem. It's like, they are going through some very hard times right now. You guys aren't, so why don't you give? Let's you know, give for the needs of the church in another place. That's what Paul would teach. And he writes about this in 1 Corinthians 16, where he writes, oops, sorry, where he writes to them, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also on the first day of the week. Hey, that's Sunday. They meet on Sundays. How about that? On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So in other words, he's saying, Get your money in order because when I get there, I just want to take it and go. And when I come, whoever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. 
Now also please turn to 2 Corinthians 8 because I want to read an extended passage there. Paul was very concerned that the church be a giving church. And in 2 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 15. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you by the grace of God, sorry, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now as you also must complete the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to desire it, so there, must, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. For if there, is a first and if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burden, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance may also supply your lack, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. So he's writing, this is the second letter to Corinthians, because in the first one he had talked about a collection, but then he didn't get a chance to go over there yet. He, in between the two letters, there was what is called a painful visit, where he had to rebuke somebody, and he wanted to come back. It's like, look, we talked about this collection, now when I come back, or when I send my representative, have it ready, because... You know, you, you sort of said that you were going to do it. You, made your, you filled out your pledge card, right? You said, I would give so much. Now when we come, you know, be faithful and fill out that, you know, fulfill that pledge card. But what he talks about here is like, look, you guys right now are wealthy. The Corinthian church was wealthy. It's like, and the Jerusalem church is suffering right now. So out of the abundance of your riches, give some of that to help them. And then he uses Christ as the example. Because Christ, who is infinitely rich, gave that up, came down, and out of, his, out of his riches, you know, he became poor so that in your, you know, you could be rich in his richness. So, now the reason these Macedonian Christians were so motivated to give to the aid of the church hundreds of miles away is because they realized that they were debtors. You can go back to Romans 15, verse 27. So it pleased these Macedonians. Remember in first, 2 Corinthians 8, he's, he's really talking highly about the Macedonians, how they gave and gave and gave. He's saying that to the Corinthians, trying to motivate them to give as well. These Macedonian Christians, they like, here, take what I have. So the Macedonian Christians realized they were debtors. It pleased them, indeed, and they are their debtors. 
For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual blessings, their duty is also to minister to them in the material things. The Gentiles are spiritual debtors to the Jews. In fact, in many cases, the reason why the gospel came to the Gentiles is because the Jews first rejected it. Paul would take it into a city. The, you know, he would have some fruit among the Jewish people, and then the rest of the Jewish people would say, go away, Paul. says, okay, fine, I'm going to the Gentiles now. And moreover, it was the Jewish church who, fleeing persecution, took the gospel out to Gentile regions. Again, God's providential hand using earthly circumstances to advance his purposes. So because of this Gentile spiritual debt, it is only fitting that they then support the Jerusalem church by meeting their material needs. The Jerusalem church met their spiritual needs. Now the, 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 uh, the church here says you need to meet, the Gentiles need to meet their material needs. Again, it would be very easy in a local church to sort of hold a bunker mentality and say, okay, we need to take care of our own and you know, we have to worry about our own problems and we're going to hunker down because there's persecution in the world and we're just going to make sure that we're okay. But the gospel calls us to so much more than that. These Gentiles were blessed materially so it was only out of their riches that they meet the needs of the poverty of the Jerusalem church. And again, the ultimate example of this, as we read earlier, is Christ. He was infinitely rich, yet he became poor for us so that we can be rich in Christ. And then Paul assures them that when he is done there, after he's done going to Jerusalem and delivering this collection, he will then come to Rome in verses 28 and 29. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain, but I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. So obviously, this is all with that Lord willing caveat, right? Lord willing, Paul will come there, but Paul knows, he knows as far as he is concerned that when he is done, that when, when, when he does eventually come to the Romans, it will be in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. So he'll bring this gospel blessing to the Roman church. Now finally, in verses 30 to 33, Paul's request for Roman prayers. So now Paul beseeches the Roman Christians to pray for him in verse 30. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. That word strive is, we get the word agonize out of it. Paul bases his request for prayer to these Christians through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the love of the Spirit. So praying for one another is an expression of our union with Christ. We pray for one another because we are all united by the Holy Spirit in Christ. And the love that we share is the love of the Spirit. We share this love. All of the one another's in Scripture attest to this. It's the reason why each and every Lord's Day here we pray for the needs of each other. We need to know these prayer requests so that we can pray properly for each other. I think that's one thing we sort of, you know, we don't want people to know our little problems and, you know, how can I pray for you? And people, oh, you know, what, no, don't worry, I don't have any prayer requests this week or whatever. But we need to know these things so that we can pray as a church. It is a good thing to be able to pray to one another 
And we should not be embarrassed about what we ask others to pray for. Because really, it's an honor and a privilege to bring each other's concerns to the throne of grace. Right? If you have more people praying for you, that's more people making an appeal to God. Now, it doesn't mean God is going to hear better because more people are saying it. But it's just an expression of our one-anotherness, our love for one another, to be praying for one another. So Paul here, he's not afraid to tell the Romans, please pray for me. Please pray for me. And he lists three specific requests in verses 31 through 32. First, well, let me read the verses. That I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, and that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. So the first thing Paul prays for is that he may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe or are disobedient. That's another way of saying the the phrase there, uh, do not believe. Now Paul here is primarily referring to the Jews, the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem. Now would Paul be in danger from his fellow Jewish people? Yeah, (laughs) of course he would be. Paul was a Pharisee. He was a zealous persecutor of the church. And then he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and gets an up-close and personal encounter with Jesus. And then that changes his whole entire life. He's no longer a Pharisaical Jew, right? And consider the first... After he goes to Damascus and he, you know, he gets healed of his blindness, and the first thing Paul does is he goes out on the streets of Damascus and starts preaching Christ. And in Acts 9, verses 23 and 25, now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. So he's, he's out there preaching in Damascus the gospel, and he's so effective at it that the Jews now start to want to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and then he watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. So fierce was the persecution of Paul, he had to be snuck out of town in a basket. That's how fervently the Jews wanted to kill him because just of a few days of preaching the gospel. And then when he gets to Jerusalem, later on in Acts chapter 9, so he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. (laughs) Paul preaches the gospel and people want to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. It's like, Paul, you need to get out of here. (laughs) They are wanting to kill you. And Paul, later on in his life, as he's approaching death, in his second letter to Timothy, he recounts to Timothy all the times that he narrowly escaped death, where he says, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, And out of them all, the Lord delivered me. So Paul was heavily persecuted everywhere he went, it seems like. As he's going now into Jerusalem, he's going into the metaphorical lion's den. He's going back to where the Jewish religious headquarters is. That's, you know, know, it's it's Judaism HQ is there. And he's going there to to bring this, this offering. So he says, pray that you, you know, that the Lord deliver me from those who seek to kill me. He also asked the Romans to pray for his service uh, to Jerusalem that it may be acceptable to the saints. So Paul was bringing this, this big bucket of money to Jerusalem and he's like, please pray that the Jews accept this. 
Now that seems like an odd request. Why wouldn't the Jews receive the gift? Why wouldn't they want to receive this gift from the hands of the Gentile church? Well, you can, a couple of reasons would be perhaps that Jew-Gentile tensions were, were, still, were still high in Jerusalem. Maybe they just didn't want to receive the gifts from the hands of Gentiles. Or perhaps the Jews would feel insulted or made to appear as dependent and needy on the Gentile church. Or perhaps there were some Jewish Christians who are still, were still wary of Paul. You remember when Paul first goes to Jerusalem, you know, the Jewish Christians are like, ah, are you here to persecute us? And they're like, no, 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 I'm, I'm one of you now. It's like, really? What's the secret handshake? No. But, you know, maybe there were some people who were still wary of Paul. Whatever the reason may be, Paul asked the Romans to pray that the Jews will receive this gift from my hand. And third, Paul asked them to pray that he will come to them, that is the Romans, with, the, uh, with joy by the will of God. Now again, Paul had no idea what would await him when he goes to Jerusalem. He had no idea. He knew that there would be a high probability that it would be very risky to go to Jerusalem, but he had no idea exactly what, would be, be, uh, what was awaiting him. In fact, when Paul made his plans to go to Jerusalem known to a group of Christians in Caesarea, he was warned by a prophet what would await him. In Acts 21, we read, And we stayed many days, and a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt. That's pretty forward. Give me your belt. You know, he takes his belt. And then he says, and Then he binds his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Agabus, by the Spirit of God, was warning Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen to you. You will be bound hand and feet and delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. But Paul wanted them to pray, the Romans, that he would eventually then make his way to Rome and be refreshed together with you all. And then he closes the section with another benediction in verse 33. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now, as we bring this to a close, the irony here, of course, is that Paul did make it to Rome, right? At the end of Acts, we see that Paul did make it to Rome, but he made it to Rome in chains. He was a prisoner. Acts 28, verse 16, Now when he came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And then at the end of Acts, then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house, and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. So Paul is in Rome, and he's in Rome in prison, under house arrest for two whole years, and he ministered there under house arrest. In fact, he wrote four letters to the churches that we have recorded in the Bible under, when he was under house arrest. The book of uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians and Philemon were all written while Paul was under home, house arrest in Rome. And though it is not recorded uh, in the Bible, that is, uh, some believe, based on some of the writings of the Apostolic Fathers, that Paul eventually was released from his Roman prison and he made a fourth missionary journey. And this would be the time between the end of the book of Acts and the beginning of the book of 1 Timothy. And it is believed that during that time, Paul eventually did make it to Spain. God is faithful, right? He wanted to go to Spain. He wanted to minister there and bring the gospel there. And God was faithful and brought him there. Well, that's it from Romans 15. 
next time, well, it says Romans 16, 1 through 27. How many people think I'm going to get through the, cha- the whole chapter next time? Yeah, your confidence in me is overwhelming. <laughs> but I just put it there because I have no idea how far I'll go, but that's the, the goal.